Jesus' name, amen. As those baskets are being passed, let me just say, I may be from, from Tennessee, but even I can tell that the spring break haze still hovers over Tallahassee, right? Do you feel it? I feel it in this room. No, okay. No, we are glad to be here at Four Oaks, right? We are. We are seven months deep into our study through the book of Acts. We've made it through 20 chapters, and we've entitled this this, this whole series, Unconquered, from, from One Life to All Nations. And one of the things that we've asked you to do is to think about, hey, you know, it's probably out of your range and my range to reach the whole world. That's tongue-in-cheek. But who's the one life that God has situated in your sphere? A friend, a coworker, a family member, um, someone who, um, you know, a longstanding high school buddy, someone in your play group, someone at work. Who is someone that God has put in your sphere that you can pray for, that you can connect with, that you can build a relationship with, that you can begin to, to, to build gospel bridges with? And we've asked you to do that, to be thinking about who that person is and to engage with them. But one of the pieces of feedback that we've received from a lot of you is, Pastor Paul, listen, I'm totally on board with that, but I need a little bit of help. Um, how, do I, how do I actually you know, sort of transition my relationship that I'm building with this person into actual gospel conversations. You know, how does that work? How does this happen? What do I do? And so, so one of the, we want to give you tools for us. We don't want to just tell you to do things and, and not equip you. And so um, one of the things that we're offering is, a, is kind of a one-hour, a one one-shot seminar we're calling Building Gospel Bridges. This is going to be taught by John Stewart and Alan Iverson, um, it, uh, it's going to go. It's going to happen next Sunday, April. I'm sorry, May. Um, what month is this? I'm, not, you know, I'm still in the spring break haze. Okay, March 29th in the adult ed room. If it goes well and there's a lot of fruit from it, we'll do it again. You're not committing five weeks or five hours. It's a one shot deal. Second service in the adult ed room. You don't have to sign up. You can just show up. And the purpose of this class or this little little seminar time is 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 how do I do that? I've been building this bridge. I've been, been connecting. How, what do I say? Where do I go? What, what am I trying to communicate? And, and, we, and hopefully it will be something that, that God really um, helps to use to equip you as you're building those gospel bridges. Okay, So we want to give you tools, and that is a tool. So, so we'd love for you to come if you want to take advantage of that next Sunday during the second service, 11 a.m., adult ed room, building gospel bridges class. Okay, turn in your Bibles to Acts 21. And as you're turning there, let me ask you a question. What in your life do you find yourself, excuse me, fighting for? What, do you, what in your life do you consistently find yourself having to fight for? And if, if any of you know me, we've been here a long time together, I have two words for you as it relates to me. Okay, wait and loss. Okay, so, so we're out of town all last week on spring break, and on, on, on vacation, I just kind of act like the rules of nutrition don't apply. Do you ever do that? Okay, they just don't apply. Calories, exercise, or lack thereof. Um, food intake just doesn't count when you're outside of Tallahassee, right? It just doesn't count. So you roll back in, I have the post-vacation weigh in. It's obvious I haven't been doing much fighting over the last week, but lots of gluttony and consuming, right? So, so we all, all have our fights. What is it 
though, for you that you fight for in your life. Okay, on a more serious note, maybe you would say, it's, it's my marriage. You know, I'm really engaged. I'm, I'm, I fight for my marriage. Or I fight for my children, okay, my, my children's spiritual well-being. Now, how many of us, though, would say, you know, Pastor Paul, I'm engaged in the fight for faith. I'm engaged in the fight for the gospel. You know, it's interesting. Luke spends, you know, we've been in this book for seven months, and Luke spends 20 chapters, okay, covering the first 30 years of the church. But he spends the last eight chapters covering only two years. Eight chapters for two years because he is going to give us a detailed ground-level war zone account of this fight for its very survival that the gospel and the people of God are engaged in. You know, and what's fascinating about this book as, as we've studied it together is that the more obstacles to the message of Jesus, the more pushback the church gets, the more persecution the more the gospel and the church grow. Isn't that a fascinating thing? And it's because, in part, I think, because the people of God in the New Testament and Acts really had a wartime mentality. They knew that they were in, the, in a fight for their very spiritual lives. They were not playing spiritual games. That's what persecution and suffering, it, it tunes us in to the reality of the war that's going on around us. And and what we're going to find in these last eight chapters is a gut-level fight for survival for the gospel and God's people. Now, if I were to ask those of us here who are living in the 21st century what we believe is the greatest threat to the survival of the gospel in our lives or in our church, what would you say? What's the greatest threat to the survival of the gospel and biblical truth and biblical faith in your life, in my life, in the life of Four Oaks Church or in the life of the, of the evangelical church? And undoubtedly, right, our instinct would all be to point to something that's happening outside of the church, all right? So click on Fox News or CNN, and it's, it's there every single day. We're all totally in tune to it. Same-sex marriage laws, the growing trend of, of banning churches from meeting on public government property, judges rolling back abortion restrictions. Or, or think about this as parents. When you think about the greatest threat to the gospel and faith in your child's life, well, it's, of course, movies, right? Or entertainment, or social media, or the declining moral rot of our culture, or maybe your uber-concerned parents about the friends and the company that your children keep. And we are very quick, I think, as Christians to pinpoint our greatest gospel threat as something that's happening outside of here, outside of us, something that's happening out there. The thing is, I think we're going to find this this morning in our text, that's not necessarily true. And I'll tell you why. You know, our family, we recently took our kids to see 
um, the new Disney movie, Big Hero 6, okay? Which, by the way, parents, crushes Frozen like a grape, okay? And so, so if you, if, and, and parents, I would t- tell you to go take your kids to see this movie, if for no other reason, to get your children singing a different soundtrack, okay? That's going to be really, really important, okay? So it's the story of, of five nerds and a robot, okay? You can see where this is going, all right? Arrayed against what they believe is the arch villain of their existence. So they're all organized and they're fighting this, whoever this arch-villain is, only to discover at the end of the movie what's happened, right? The real enemy was someone on the inside, right? Someone that they knew, someone that they trusted. The enemy was on the inside. That was their greatest threat, not the enemy on the outside. And what's interesting about the New Testament, guys, do you realize the New Testament writers spent very incredibly little time addressing the dangers that the church faced from outside the church. Very few, okay? Um, and, and in fact, the times that, that the New Testament writers address what's happening culturally is for things like, well, pray for your leaders. Obey them. Respect them. Pay them your money, okay? It, the thing, oh, you know, it's things like this. But almost the entirety of the New Testament is, is devoted by the, by the Scripture writers to dangers from within, from the inside and not the outside. You know, last week, Pastor Dave preached through Acts 20, and here Paul is addressing the Ephesian elders. And it's interesting what Paul says to them. Does Paul, does Paul warn them about the Romans? Okay. Does Paul warn them about the false gods in Ephesus? Does Paul warn them about the cultural rot that is happening in that city? No, what does Paul speak to them about? Dangers from the outside? No, no, no. Dangers from the inside. He said, be careful. Be, be on the watch. Those you love and you trust the most are going to creep in. They're going to start teaching false doctrine. They're going to, to lead the brethren astray. And I think, folks, there's two sorts of pressures that are brought upon the church by those within the church. Does this have our attention? Okay. There's two sorts of pressures by those brought upon the church by those within the church that I think threaten gospel integrity and gospel unity. And there's, there's the forces of inclusion that wants to make the church broader than it needs to be. And there's the forces of exclusion which attempt to make the church and the family of God more narrow than it should be. And let, let me give you an example of inclusion. So many of you heard of, of Rob Bell, pastor um, at Mars Hill Bible Church, not Mars Hill Bible Church, Seattle, but Mars Hill Bible Church somewhere in Michigan where it's really cold even right now. And so, so Rob Bell um, was a pastor, wrote, wrote a book called um, Love Wins about how, you know, really denigrates this idea that there's a literal hell um, that in the end God has his way and everybody's saved and those sorts of things. Rob Bell is now a former pastor, okay, because he, he resigned from his, his, his gig he has, a, he has a, a talk show with Oprah Winfrey, and recently he had, had this to say about homosexuality and gay marriage. Now understand, man within the church, right? Evangelical, prominent, author, speaker, renowned, on the conference circuit, and here's what he says, and I quote, I think culture, he says, is already there. And he's talking about homosexuality and gay marriage. I think culture is already there, And and here's the kicker. But the church 
will continue to be even more relevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense. I mean, I want you to think about that. You see what, what's happening here, what happens with the forces of inclusion. In order to accommodate my emerging theology about who I think God is and who I think you are and what I think should characterize our life together, I'm going to sort of change my doctrine of Scripture to fit my theology. You see how that works? And now they are 2,000-year-old letters. That's how the Word of God is characterized. See, guys, inclusion takes away from the Word of God, and it kills the church. If you want to know what's happening with mainline churches across America, they're dead. They're dead. They're dying because they've lost the gospel. There's forces of inclusion. Now, what we're going to talk about this morning, okay, we could, we could wax eloquent on this for a long, long time, okay? But for us this morning, we're going to talk about the forces of inclusion. So, you know, inclusion does the opposite. It doesn't take away from the Word of God, okay? On the other hand, exclude, forces of exclusion add to the Word of God, thus marginalizing themselves and thus becoming irrelevant over time. And they're isolated from the very people that they're attempting to reach. Okay, so an extreme example. Okay, we'll keep all of these examples in a very sort of arm's length and we'll like really offend you at the end of the sermon. Can we do that? Can we all agree that that's what we're going to do? Okay, an extreme example of this is something like we see in the Amish community. Okay, so in an effort, think about this 300 years ago, in an effort, the Amish 300 years ago to remain faithful and untainted by the world they institutionalized a certain era of culture, which happens to be the 1700s, okay? Now, so, so to be a part of our community, they would say, you can't drive a car. You have to drive a horse and buggy. You can't use a telephone. There's no electricity, and you obviously have to build a barn in your backyard, right? Okay, those are all the, all the sort of the characteristics. Now, biblically, let me just say this, guys. You're free to do any of those things that you want to do, Okay? If you want to roll on horseback, go for it, okay? There's no biblical law against it, okay? You are free in Christ to, to, to not have electricity in your house. I'm not sure how you're going to navigate March Madness that way, but again, all right, you're free to do that. But, okay, when you require it as a condition of being a part of the community, do you see what happens? Influence is lost. People aren't reached. And so, which means at the end of the day, The issue with the forces of inclusion and exclusion are the same. The word of God is distorted in some way, either added to or taken away, and the gospel shrinks. The gospel shrinks. Okay, our text this morning focuses on the forces of exclusion within the church. Okay, so here's what is happening. Paul has been warned, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be imprisoned. You're going to be imprisoned. And Paul's like, I am not deterred. I am going, I'm engaging in the gospel fight. The gospel is fighting for its very survival in Jerusalem. I'm marching right into Jerusalem. I'm engaging the fight. I know I'll probably be in prison, but it doesn't matter. Because Paul's heart was for everyone. Paul believed in a big gospel. He was faithful in adhering to gospel truth, which is where we want to land, but he was flexible in practice and its forms. And folks, that is, that, that is my burden for us this morning. 
Because there are going to be certain principles that we have to adhere to because we believe in the Word of God. Okay? So if you're new here and you're like, what, what's Four Oaks all about? The reason we preach through books of the Bible, um, it, is, it matters not a whit what my opinion is. Okay? Ultimately, we have to weigh things by the Word of God. There ha- every church has some sort of authority, right? It's either the authority of the people or the authority of the pastor or the authority of consensus. But ultimately, in every church body, there has to be an ultimate authority. And for us, that's not located in a person. It's not located in a group. It's located in a book, which is the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is what? Breathed out by God. And so that, that, that is my presupposition this morning. And if you're not there, that's not where you are, then I pray for you that God would engage your heart as we walk through this text. And so we're titling this sermon, The Gospel Fight from Within. So let's start 21 verse 17. Now Luke is speaking, so he is with Paul and his company at this point. And Luke says, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, Paul, you, brother, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. So there's Christian Jews. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you, and that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? By the way, that's our, that's our overriding question this morning as we pursue gospel unity together. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men, Paul, who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Let's pray. Lord, this is a, a hard text and a challenging text, but Lord, because it's your word, we think it's a relevant text. It's alive, it is active. It is cutting through every joint and marrow. It is demolishing strongholds. Lord, our desire as a church family is to be as as faithful biblically as we possibly can be. But Lord, as flexible as we possibly can be so as to win some. And Lord, we need your grace. We don't want to succumb to the forces of inclusion or exclusion, we just want to submit ourselves to the gospel. So Lord, would you help us with that and give us grace as we 
dive into your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You read this text, and I hope your first question, like it was mine when I was studying, is what in the world is going on in this passage? Okay, let's try to make some sense of it. Because since the last time that Paul had been in Jerusalem in Acts 15 for the Jerusalem Council, he had gone on two more missionary journeys. So remember, he had gone on one missionary journey. All, the, all these Gentiles had, had, had been coming to faith in Christ. They were trying to figure out how do, how do Jewish Gen, and Gentile Christians all live together, and they went to the Jerusalem Council. Remember this? A number of weeks ago we studied this. And, and, and the Jerusalem Council kind of forged their way through with some, with some principles and some practical applications for how Jews and Gentiles were to live together. And now, it's been a number of years, Paul's gone on two more missionary journeys, and the results have been just astounding. Paul has planted churches all over Asia Minor and the European mainland. Thousands, tens of thousands, more Gentiles saved. Churches have been planted, the gospel has spread. And now, while this was happening, the church in Jerusalem was not comprised of, of Gentiles. It was composed primarily of Jewish Christians. And this church had grown exponentially as well. Look in verse 20. It says, how many thousands of Jews? The, the literal word is tens of thousands. If you're not comfortable with a big church, you would not have been comfortable in the church in Jerusalem. This was a thriving, mega-like church. And it says in verse 17, look there, that when Paul and his companions, his Gentile companions, arrived, they were received gladly. It says in verse 20 that James and the elders, in fact, rejoiced, it says, over the salvation of the Gentiles and gave glory to God. And so what does this tell us? Okay, and this is really, really important for us before we talk about any of this other stuff. Really important. The, Jew, the Gentile and Jewish Christian leaders were unified around the gospel message. Despite whatever cultural differences they had, and they had them, okay, they were unified that the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ was the cornerstone of salvation. They were saved by grace through faith, not in observance of the law. That's really important for us to understand, okay, because there is a growing movement, okay, in evangelicalism that really wants to prioritize some words of Scripture over others. So you may have heard the term, I'm a red-letter Christian. What does that mean? Okay? That means, well, I give special weight to the words of Christ, but when it comes to Paul and James and the other writers, not so much. Okay? People inappropriately divide God's word. I remember 1988, so University of Tennessee, the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, the University of Tennessee in Knoxville in God's country, that place, okay? So I took my Western Civ class with Dr. Haas, okay, who was basically looked like an anorexic version of Colonel Sanders. All right, I was going to show his picture, but I decided not to. Now, I remember he's standing in front of the class and saying, and reading James chapter 2, this James, talking about justification by faith, and then reading Paul's words and pitting them against each other and saying, see, the Bible contradicts itself and we, we can't trust anything the Bible says. Understand, okay, that when we read these things in context, we understand from this text, Paul and James were totally unified on the truths and the foundation of the gospel that people were saved by the gospel of grace. 
What they were wrestling with, though, Four Oaks, were not the gospel truths, but gospel applications through what we would call customs or traditions or cultural expressions of faith exercised by these two groups. Now think about what it would have been like to be a Jew. You were raised a Jew, an ethnic Jew, a religious Jew your whole life, and then you come to place your faith in Christ as the Jewish Messiah. And because you're raised as a Jew, it would have been very natural for you to continue to observe some of the Jewish forms, like food, or going to the temple, or observing the Sabbath, or dressing in a certain way, or taking certain Jewish vows. And we need to understand this. This was not wrong. Okay? This was not wrong. They weren't looking to these forms as a means or ground of their salvation. It was part of their religious, cultural expression. So the forms weren't the problem okay, in this passage. The forms weren't the problem. The problem was that many of these Jewish Christians thought these cultural expressions should be the norm for everyone. Okay? You see? They knew the gospel of grace, but they equated custom and tradition and forms as part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian, particularly if you're a Jew. So if you're a Jew like Paul, and they see Paul coming in, and not willing to engage in Jewish rites and customs, it could raise real questions. Paul, where, where, where are you? Paul, what's going on in your heart? Paul, is your faith real? Paul, is, is, is your faith genuine? We don't think this stuff saves you, but like, what's going on with you that you would kind of askew your history and your culture and your traditions? Okay? I was talking to Josh Hughes this week. You know, of course, Josh and Katie, a couple years ago, went to Uganda to adopt their, their children, Titus and Eva. And they were part of a Christian church and community while they were there. And of course, as soon as they found out Josh could lead worship, okay, what do you think they had him doing for the next two months of his life, okay? So they were all over that. But it's very interesting in that culture, a husband is not going to lead worship without whom? his wife, okay? So they expected Katie to lead worship with him with a mic, okay? Which is a problem because, and they're not here today, so I can say this, Katie doesn't sing, okay? Actually, she sings, but she doesn't sing into a mic, okay? Do you understand that? Okay, so, so the cultural expectation in that culture, if you don't do this, something's wrong, right? Something is wrong. There are big problems. You know, the, the in Church didn't think this was a requirement for salvation, but they did believe it was a marker of spirituality. This is, a, this is a marker of true leadership, and it was going to cause massive disunity for them not to do this. So Katie played like she was on American Idol with the karaoke machine, right? So she, she did it, and she's glad she was able to leave that gift behind, okay, in, in Uganda. Guys, that's exactly, in a sense, what's going on with the Jewish Christians in this text. And this is why Paul, this is why James proposed to Paul what he did. He said, Paul, will you make this concession? Paul, will you make this accommodation so that these things don't become a stumbling block to your Jewish brothers? And so here's what Paul, here's what James suggests. Look at verse 24. He said, Paul, there's four men, and they've all taken a vow. And undoubtedly, this is a reference to the 
to, to the Nazarite vow, not Nazarene, Nazarite vow from Numbers chapter 6. And, and in Numbers chapter 6, okay, a lot of times, you know, as Christians, we will take a season of fasting, you know, to devote ourselves to the Lord, to prayer. A, a Nazaritic vow was, was very similar in the Old Testament. It was more involved. You would basically set yourself apart to the Lord for a season. So you wouldn't cut your hair. You wouldn't drink wine. You would pray. You would fast. It was a season of seeking the Lord. And at the end of that time of seeking the Lord and being especially devoted and set apart to him, you would end your vow by coming to the temple and offering sacrifices. And understand, guys, these Jewish Christians were still doing this, and there, there probably was, there was nothing wrong with it. In fact, we know from two chapters earlier, Paul himself had taken a Nazaritic vow. The problem was not the Nazaritic vow. Because you could take a Nazarite vow today. Um, some of you probably need to cut your hair, okay? But, I mean, like, you, you, you could take a vow today and set yourself apart and pray and fast and all those good things. It's not that that's wrong, okay? God looks at the heart. The issue is that they put a special spiritual significance on this to the extent to say, Paul, if, if, if you can't show us your bona fides, then you really don't have much standing with us. And so James says, Paul, as an accommodation, will you join in? So as to not offend them. And so what does Paul do? Was Paul wrong in doing this? I don't think he was. And here's why. Paul's very clear in 1 Corinthians 9.22. He says, I have become all things to all men, so that I might win some. That I might win some. So for Paul to take this Jewish vow wasn't wrong. Paul wasn't looking to it to provide his salvation. Um, Paul didn't necessarily attach any spiritual, extra spiritual significance to it. He didn't require it for everyone. He did it because he loved. He did it as an accommodation okay, to them. You know, um, interesting, Pastor Lance is, is um, our, our Midtown campus pastor, and he was with an organization, a uh, missions organization in college that ministered in Eastern Europe, okay? And this organization had very, very strong convictions about alcohol, okay? Which could be summed up in one word. What was it? Don't, okay? Don't. Now, the problem was that these Eastern Europeans they were ministering to had very strong convictions about alcohol themselves, which could be summed up in one word, which was what? Do, okay? Don't and do. So much so that in every little household in Eastern, this Eastern European country, they would kind of make their own special brew of homemade vodka, if you could ever imagine, okay? And so, so, so obviously, Lance's whole team is horrified, okay, by this, Okay? But Lance said his team leader pulled him aside and said, listen, let's make, let's make one thing clear, okay? You're going in there, and you are drinking that vodka, okay? That is what is happening for you, friend, okay? You will drink this for the sake of the gospel. And Lance did, and as he said, it was nasty. Okay, anyway, so this is what we're talking about here, guys, okay? Paul because he was clear on his gospel principles, could, ad- could adopt flexible gospel 
practices. Okay, so, so now these, these, these examples I've been using about Uganda and Eastern Europe and, all, and the Amish, those are a little abstract. I want to spend the rest of our time just trying to apply the principles that we see in here in this passage to our context here at Four Oaks Church. Okay, now and there, there's two sets of questions I want you to be sort of asking yourself during this last part of our time in the text, okay? And here's the first question. First, where do I need to be more like Paul to the metaphorical Jewish Christians in my life, okay? How do I extend grace and mercy and accommodation to those Christians who have differing convictions than my own, okay? How do I do that, Lord? Where do I need to extend biblical love and patience to those who are just like these Jews? What does it say, guys? They were zealous, okay? Guys, guys people adopt convictions and distinctives because they're zealous, right? And he says, and Paul's like, I, I, I know your zeal, but Lord, we need to ask, where do I need to extend love and patience to those who may have zeal to obey God, but not necessarily a grounded, thorough biblical knowledge, okay? So that's one set of questions. Lord, how, do, how, how are you calling me to be Paul in this passage to other people in my life? So I'm engaging with other people in my life who have different convictions in this area, that area. We'll talk about what those areas are in a minute. But here's the second kind of question, okay? Second kind of question. Lord, show me, where am I functioning like a Jewish Christian with a need to mature and just grow up? Okay, so in other words, Lord, and I think this, this, this might hit us a little, little harder here. Are there ways that I am walking out the personal convictions of my Christian faith? Okay, so all of us have these, and guys, they're not wrong. Personal convictions, okay, are not wrong, and we all have them, whether it's related to school or parenting or worship or money or food or drink or politics and family. I mean, the list goes on, right? Nothing wrong with convictions. You need to have convictions. But Lord, are there ways that I'm walking out these personal convictions that are harming or hindering gospel unity? Lord, have I separated myself from fellowship over my own personal extra-biblical convictions? So how do I need the Lord to mature as a believer? Understanding there's a difference in principle, okay, which don't change, and practice, which should and do. So th- those are your two sets of questions. Everybody tracking? Lord, where am I called to be Paul? And take the Nazaritic vow. But Lord, where am I being a Jewish Christian? Where do I need to set aside not my convictions, but the way that I hold my convictions and tension that might separate me from fellowship. Because understand, I firmly believe this, this, James and Paul, this was not ideal. This was not ideal. It was an accommodation. But because they were clear on gospel unity, they bent over backwards to do what they could. Okay? So, so the two sets of questions, and I want to talk about two areas that I think 
are particularly relevant for us in a 21st century Four Oaks Community Church, northeast side of Tallahassee context, okay? So I thought they would be two easy, non-controversial areas, okay? Family, life, and food. Can we talk about those two? <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll resolve those in the next 10 minutes, okay, for everybody, okay? Let me, let me talk about family life for a minute and why I think this is important for us to wrestle with. Four Oaks, we are in the middle of one of the greatest societal transformations in the history of mankind as it relates to the dissolution of the family, okay? If, if, if it's not already true, there is no doubt it soon will be that a majority of adults, probably at some point in our life, will come from a broken home. A majority of adults. And that has immense sociological implications. Because the interesting stat from the last census, only 20% of households in America have a married couple raising children who are under 18. 20%. There's a higher percentage, 27%, of households of, who have only one person in them. Guys, that is a massive societal, sociological transformation. But as Christians, we have certain rock-solid biblical principles that we hang our hat on, which is the family unit, the centrality of the family, is the building block of human society and culture. Okay, We could go all the way to Genesis 1 and 2, or Ephesians 5, or Colossians 3. We don't have time to do all that, but we could, we could show this. Yet, we are called, as a church family, to build gospel bridges to people who have absolutely no categories for family structure. Zero. Few choices, whether it relates to work or home or schooling, which means we have to be very thoughtful and very gracious with how we engage a lost culture with biblical principles. Guys, understand, for most of our culture, the only, the only exposure they have to an intact nuclear family oftentimes comes on TV, and that's when they're watching the Duggars, and they don't know what to do with that, right? Okay, so, so I mean, this is, this is what we're wrestling with here. Here's a principle, guys, and let, let me read 1 Timothy 5.14. So I would have, this is Paul, by the way, He says, so I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. Okay, that's a principle in the Word of God. Titus 2, 4 through 5. He's telling Titus, so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not be reviled. We can go to Ephesians 5 and talk about how men are to, to be spiritual leaders of their home. And there's certain principles here, right? Moms, women are given domain of their home, the privilege of bearing children. They are helpmates to their husbands. It's been given to men to lead and provide. Okay? These are all principles, truths found in the Word of God. And, and, and I would say in a general way, these principles will naturally lead men and women into distinct and oftentimes separate spheres as it relates to home and work. However, we have to be really careful here, folks, to differentiate between principle, what I just said, and practice. 
Because the scriptures don't say anything, per se, about women working outside of home. If anything, Proverbs 31 provides a portrait of a very engaged, active woman in her network and community, buying and selling and and being and, and exerting authority in a sense and leadership. We have to understand that all of those things we shouldn't necessarily conflate 1950s family life forms with biblical norms. Okay? Because there are many contextual factors at play when it comes to organizing family life, right? We know this, okay? Truth in advertising, okay? We have four kids, ages 8 to 16. My wife, Susan, um, does part-time work from home. So, I mean, you need to know kind of where I'm, where I'm coming from with this. Guys, there are many contextual factors when it... When, when, when we're trying to apply these biblical principles that come into play, age of your kids. Some of you are single parents. You have absolutely no choice in this matter. You are just hitting the pavement every day because this is what you have to do for your children and for your family. There's financial hardship. There is financial provision. There's season of life. There's health. There's same thing with school. We're not going to go down the schooling road again this morning, okay? The scriptures are silent about how you should educate your children, okay? It says to educate them in the principles of scripture. It doesn't tell you how. Before Oaks, here's the principle for us as it relates to the forces of gospel exclusion, okay? Which is what a church like ours needs to pay attention to, okay? How do we love people where, we, where they are? How do we engage people with the gospel where they are? How do we build community around the gospel and not our particular family form? Does that make sense? Okay. Because when you build community first around the fact that we educate this way or we organize home life in this way, or we pursue work outside of the home in this way, if that is the tip of the spear in how you organize and engage in gospel community with other Christians, we're well on our way, I think, to becoming the Jewish Christians in this passage. We're not organizing and fellowshipping first around the gospel. So here's a couple of questions for us, practical questions. Do you engage with adults and families and households that don't look like yours? Are there other forms of family life in your fellowship group that look different than your own? How are you building gospel bridges to single parents? Um, now, now can, we can flip it around and say, now, now, now single, single parents, how are you building gospel bridges to families that have family structure that don't look like yours? How are we loving? How are we extending hospitality? Who are we inviting into our homes? Who are we inviting to go out to lunch after church today? Folks, I say this not because the biblical principles aren't clear, but it takes great wisdom to know how to work them out and exercise them in a post-modern culture where no one has any of the foundation-building blocks they once did. We have to be careful. We don't make family form exclusionary to the gospel 
message. Okay, that's food. That's family. Let's talk about food. Okay, you may say, "What in the world?" Okay, why? Why is this important, guys? There has been a massive shift over the last twenty-five years in terms of how people to decide to engage the health decisions in their life. Okay, for, for most of the twentieth century. Okay which was dominated by modernism, science and human reason reigned, right? So, so progress, all right? So, so if, you, if you go to Magic Kingdom and you do the carousel of progress, right? It's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow. You can tell where we've been this last week, right? So it's progress in technology or progress in medicine or progress in advances, and, and there was sort of an implicit trust of that world to make decisions for us about our health and nutrition. And guys, we all understand over the last 25 years, that has dramatically changed, okay? So people have begun, as kind of a reaction to that, to reassert control of their lives. So there's grassroots, and there's empowerment, and there's ownership, and there's choices. And now people are more discerning, okay, more peculiar, more specific about what they will and will not eat, how they will and they will not care for their bodies, okay? And, and this can be a point, if we're not careful, that can be a real exclusionary force in the body of Christ that hinders fellowship, okay? Now, let me say a couple of things biblically that, that, that I think are, are really clear in terms of principle, okay? Colossians 2.16, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink. <laughs> that seems to be very clear. Okay? Whatever your personal convictions are about food or drink, don't pass judgment on someone who thinks differently, who holds different convictions. Okay? 1 Timothy 4.4, 4. for everything God, for everything created by God is good, he's talking about food, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Guys, those are very biting passages, okay? Because we have, and, and, and here's what we take from this. Guys, we have freedom in Christ to make decisions about how we care for our body, what we eat, what we don't eat, whether it's natural or homeopathic or gluten-free or bacterial-free or antibiotic-free or taste-free, okay, even, okay? And that's, there was, that was my one little dig, okay? I just don't believe there is such a thing as eating and exercising God's way, okay? And that may offend some of you, because you might believe, oh, yes, Pastor Paul, there is. And I would say, you're wrong, okay? <laughs> Paul says here, guys, and the problem is not doing all that. Do it, it's a, it's, it's, there's, there's freedom in Christ. Pursue it. Eat that thing. Don't eat that thing. Do whatever it is that you want to do when you have a clear conscience before the Lord. But here's where it's a problem, just like the Jewish Christians, when you say, everybody else needs to be doing it too. And I'm proselytizing. And I'm passing judgment. And I'm blogging and posting more on preferred food methods and medical treatments versus Jesus and the gospel and what he's doing in my life. Okay? That's the problem. That's the problem. Guys, here's my conviction in my heart as we're thinking about how this passage rests on us. 
My conviction, guys, is that narrowness around non-gospel distinctives cuts off the mission and the ministry of the church, and it hurts people. When we trumpet, and it's the tip of the spear, our non-gospel distinctives. But my heart, as a pastor, is that we have a gospel-centered fellowship that builds community based upon what Jesus has done for us, and not based upon the extra-biblical practices and distinctives some of us have, as important as those are. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 2.2, For I decided to know nothing among you, what? Except how you ate, how you educated your kids, what sort of family form you had, what your convictions were about schooling. No. I I would resolve, resolve to know nothing more among you except this, Paul says, Jesus Christ and him crucified. As important for us as all of those distinctives are, we ultimately as a church family don't want to be known primarily for any of those things. We want to be known for the good news of Jesus Christ. And we have a great opportunity coming up, don't we? And you have these cards in your, in your seat. What an opportunity to say, you know what, single mom, you know what, single dad, you know what, person at work, I know your life, you think your life is messed up, and you don't do it the way we do it, and you feel embarrassed, and you feel shame, or you feel out of place, but just come and worship with us and hear about what God's done in our life. Hear about the gospel and how it's changed my life. It's not about all the externals, as important as those are. It's about what God wants to do in your heart and in my heart. Come, Four Oaks, renew yourself in the gospel this Easter season. Bring your friends. Extend the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. We close with this. Guys, what happens to Paul, by the way? What happens? We got to that point in the story. He fulfills his Nazaritic vow. He goes into the temple, and all, everything's great, right? No. Because there's non-Christian Jews, and they start to riot, and the Romans come in, and they have to rescue Paul. And Paul is put into prison where he remains for the next two years. And guys, never again in the book of Acts is Paul free after this. Never again. And yet... His imprisonment becomes simply another way for him to engage the gospel fight. Let it be the same for us. Let's pray.